Let me encourage you to read your bulletin every Sunday if you uh, receive it on email on Friday. looks like this. You'll find it back there. You'll find a lot of information in here that will tell you about all the different things that are going on. I am going to update a few things. Um, <clears throat> what happened to Ryan Hunter? <laughs> Is he, okay. He got to take, well, anyway, Ryan Hunter, you'll probably see him. He's in a blue shirt. He'll come back, right? And He'll sit right down here. We want Ryan to be the coach of our softball team. That's in the bulletin. Uh, it's got his number in there. But we, if to do that, we need additional players. We're looking for three to five players. It can be men or women. But you talk to Ryan about all the details. There's details in here. Um, <clears throat> this is a great way for the people in our congregation to get to meet one another, all ages, and to uh, get to meet others in the community. Just like the mission trip to Guatemala, we turn all this activity into an opportunity for the gospel. I know we've done this before in the past. So uh, here's a, one of our newer members who's stepping up to do this. Let's see if that can happen. I do want to update you on a few other things that uh, need to be updated because it's last-minute information for the bulletin. One is we received word this morning that uh, Bobby Gist passed away. And uh, if you know uh, Bobby and his family, be sure and um, be sure and reach out to Bobby's family. And we don't have any details yet on funeral services. We do have details on Vivian Flood's uh, funeral service. Earl is here with us this morning, and that funeral will be on Thursday, 9:30 a.m. here at the building. And we appreciate that all all that uh, Earl and Vivian and their family have done for this congregation. And as uh, Earl said, um, you know, there's, you grieve, but there's a blessing in this because you know that she is blessed by God even now. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would bless us in all of these transitions of life as we move past illness, as we move through health, as we see the transition from life to death. And Father, I pray that you would keep our focus on the eternal life that we have because we've heard a word of good news. A word of good news that you love us, that you're on our side, that we don't have to be captive to sin anymore, <clears throat> that the powers of evil do not rule this world, and that you rule this world, and you have exalted your Son who gave his life for all, for all of us, who humbled himself and became obedient to you. Father, we have this blessing in you because um, of that. And Lord, keep our focus on that, that we can trust that he is our king and that you have exalted him. And that if we, um, if we believe that gospel, if we've accepted that grace, then it changes the way that we live our life. Not to earn a prize, but to live out the prize that we've already received in this blessing. Father, be with me as I preach. Be with us as we hear your word and I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, take a look with me if you've got your uh, Bible at Philippians uh, chapter 1. By the way, on that uh, West Ark, I, I think I'll just go ahead and use this. On this West Ark app, uh, I think there's a Bible. Yeah, there's a Bible on it. You can, you can go and... and, and Grab that, and you can even punch in the numbers that you want. So here I am doing it in action, 
because I forgot my analog Bible. And uh, Philippians 1, there we go. And I just want you to hear this reading, but it'll start with verse 27. Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I am coming to see you or if I am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side with one another for the faith of the gospel. And don't be frightened about anything from your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of your destruction, of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that salvation is from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now you hear I still have. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and with one, and with one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count yourselves or count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to. But he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. We're less than 30 days away from the end of our growing season, is what we're calling it. And this growing season started uh, in January with the fifth Sunday of that month. And we're going to wrap it up on the fifth Sunday of this month. And just as we had a, uh, an evening assembly to gather everyone together, to encourage you to get involved in groups and with one another, we've had 90 days of prayer. We're going to wrap it up then. Not that the spiritual growth doesn't continue past then, but let's have a benchmark. We're going to have a benchmark where we're going to say, okay, what has God been doing among us? And so I want, you to, I want to encourage you to pay attention over the next few days until we approach that, uh, that April, I believe it's April 30th, that April 30th celebration. 
And pay attention to what God is doing to work in you, to work in the lives of others. That's one of the ways that we arrive at spiritual growth, is by paying attention to what God is doing. Or, as Paul says, you put your salvation to work. Paul describes Christ-like conduct as living in a worthy manner. Now, this is important. Because we could get hung up on that word worthy. And you're going to think, okay, well, how how can I be worthy of the gospel? Well, I'm going to make this real simple. You're not. None of us are worthy. You're not going to be worthy. But what you can do is you can live in a worthy manner. You can live worthily of the gospel. In other words, you've got this gospel, you've got this grace Do you live in a way that is consistent with that? That's what we strive for. That's the struggle that Paul's describing. Now, it means that sometimes we're not going to be met with friendly forces in the world around us. That sometimes living in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, living that kind of gospel-worthy life, is not going to be met with favor. And Paul knows this because he's writing this letter to the Philippians and he's in jail for living out life in Christ. I don't know that we'll necessarily end up in jail, but we might be faced with people who find it rather annoying that you and I would rather devote our time and attention and our priorities to Christ rather than devote it to the anxious concerns that they have in the world today. And we might find it very distressing that people look at us with wonder when we don't affirm their crises and affirm their emergencies because we have hope in Christ. And they're going to get rather annoyed with us. And then sometimes it might even be to the point that we're persecuted in some manner or some form. I don't know that it's going to happen in this country as much as it's going to happen in other countries even now, but it happens. And Paul wraps all that up with one phrase, and he says, you know, when you live in a manner worthy of the gospel, you shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Since the 1960s at least, uh, it's become clear that there's a weakening of support for the church in our increasingly secular American culture. Okay? Here's the thing. I'll accept that fact, and I've read a lot of stuff about that. that, You know what? I think that's probably true. I think there were some shifts and some changes in the 20th century. Here's the thing. I'm not going to sit around and cry about that. I'm not going to sit around and worry about that, and I don't want you to either. I mean, here's Apostle Paul. He's sitting in prison. He could go on a tirade and talk about how he's being victimized and abused and these people are unfair in what they're doing. And he says, "Eh," you know, he says, I kind of, I'm paraphrasing Paul. He says, looks like this works out either way for me. If they treat me harshly and I die and I'm executed here in prison, well, I get to go be with Christ. But if, I, if they keep me around, and if I hang around here, no matter what's going on, no matter how bad the situation is, I get to encourage you. He says, I'm a winner either way. 
And you see, this is, the, this is the, the temptation for us, is that when we see these things changing, we can go into a lament for all the wrong reasons. And lament the fact that people out there, or people in our families, or people that we know, or the governments and the institutions, they just don't support the church anymore. Well, what did you expect? It may not be, it'd be nice, but it may not happen that way. My concern is this, that we've done a good job over the last 20 years making our list of grievances and making that our mission. And now there's wars on everything. There's a war on Christmas. There's a war on Christians. There's a war on traditional marriage. There's a war on this. There's a war on worship. There's just wars everywhere. Maybe we just ought to stop fighting those wars. Maybe we ought to get on the king's mission rather than all these missions that are out there to stir us up. Because the only war that really matters has already been fought and won by our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's just calling us to join the victory parade. We don't stand together defined by our opposition. You know, that's one of the things that I think we probably all find distressing in this day and age is that no leader comes up in our culture or in our, uh, you know, anywhere, really, that calls us to stand together for something. But more often we see people who call us to come together against something. So you have a group that's against this. You have a group that's against this. You have a group that's opposed to this. We're opposed to this. We're in opposition to this. And there comes a point at which I think as human beings it's happening to us. We're starting to realize I'm tired of finding out everything that I've got to be against. What is there to be for? What is there? Because that's what's going to change our lives and change our world. Paul, notice in this scripture, he doesn't say, okay, I'm going to give you the long list of things that you need to stand against and oppose. Instead, he uses the language, don't be frightened by your opponents. They're going to try to define you in terms of what you are against, and they're going to come up with stuff, and and you can't change their minds, and you don't need a public relations firm to change your image, to make you look better to the people out there who oppose you. He's saying that to the Philippians, and he might as well be saying it to us as well. Instead, he says, you don't stand in unity by opposition, but you stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We are for something. We have this amazing revelation of gospel. Gospel is an old English word that means, it it translates the, the, the Greek word that more or less means good news, an announcement, a good announcement. Just imagine for a moment that you've been given 10 minutes to tell a group of people about the gospel. By the way, if you'll come back here at 6 o'clock tonight, Josh and Kim and I are going to talk about how that was really, truly their experience. And I think this is a good exercise for all of us. You've been given 10 minutes, maybe not even 10 minutes. How will you communicate the gospel? It's one thing to think about that. It's another thing when you actually find yourself, oh, okay, I actually have to explain this. 
And you start going through the checklists, and you realize, wait a second, a lot of these checklists are about, okay, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. You've got all these don'ts. You've got, okay, not for this, not for that. Here's the, here's the structure. Here's the arrangement. Here's how you put it together. At some point, you've got to get right to the core and say, this is what the gospel is really all about. Everything else follows out of it. Paul did that with the Corinthian church. Lord willing, in a few weeks, I want to start teaching 1 Corinthians on the Sunday night. But it's interesting that you go through Corinthians and you think that Paul's dealing with all of these church problems. Paul, we've got problems in Corinth. Oh, yeah, we've got a guy who's, uh, you know, in a relationship with his stepmom. Well, that's not good. Uh-huh. Well, even worse than that, we've got women praying and they don't have hats on. Oh, no. And so, you know, they've got all these problems in Corinth. What's interesting is when you read the letter, he starts off with the gospel. The five-minute version or less of the gospel. You know where he ends? The gospel. Everything else gets answered by that. Paul's consistent in that. You and I need to be defined as a people who stand firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Let that be the test of everything that we do together. Let that be the test of everything. How do we stand together for the good news that's in Jesus Christ? And what does it mean? That's salvation at work. When we have that mind in us, then we're going to convert. And by the way, he talks a lot about the mind. The mind of Christ. The one mind that you have. But that mind isn't just a set of facts that we accept and think. It turns into energy-burning, time-consuming, money-investing, callous-forming activity. If you believe it, if you have that mind, then you're going to act on it. You're going to work. You're going to turn it into energy. And for Paul, there's no trade-off. He doesn't say, well, you know, it's better to think this rather than to do that. It's not a choice. It's a cycle. Thinking is doing. Doing forms thinking. Thinking shapes doing, and on and on it goes. It's like the cycle of breathing. What do you do when you breathe? You inhale. You exhale. Now, it would be pretty foolish if we ask, okay, now which one of those is more important? Because if you figure out which one's more important, then you just stick to your favorite and don't do the other one. See how that works for you. Mind and work go together. And the gospel is much more than being simply conservative for the sake of being conservative. That's kind of a reductionist approach, kind of a boiling it down approach that says, well, you know, uh, I might as well just be safe in everything. And, and, you know, if I'm safe in everything, then I tell you what, uh, you know, then I won't have anything to worry about, right? Yeah. I used to hear that logic from people when I was younger, and it said, well, now, a runner is safe on base. So you're going to stay safe if you stay on base. Uh-huh. But you won't score if you don't get off the base. Look, Everybody's got their, I see everybody, well, it's opening day for baseball. And you know, what a wonderful, glorious unity we have. We have Cubs fans and Cardinal fans come together. Rick was talking about how it equalizes everybody. I mean, even in baseball, we're all equal. Isn't that wonderful? You can, you can, you can hate and root for the other team all you want out there, but you know, everybody comes together in one spirit. Now, if we can just pull that off for Auburn and Alabama, then my goodness, you know, 
you will see the gospel at work, truly. And uh, you can't just reduce the gospel down to a set of principles that says, well, as long as I don't make any moves and I'm here safe in this safe zone, everything's going to be okay. Because God calls us to work. He calls us to do. And when Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he does not mean a type of fear and trembling that is always doubtful as to whether or not God is on our side. If that were the case, then the gospel is not good news. If that's the case, then there is nothing good about the gospel because it means that we serve a capricious God who we don't know if on any given day he decides that he's against us and we've offended him so badly that he's just going to stomp us like insects. That's not the fear and trembling that he's talking about. The fear and trembling is a type of humility that says the only reason that we have this opportunity to do good in his name is because of the grace He has shown us in Jesus Christ. And then that calls us to start looking at one another a little differently. And when we get a a little too worried about what others are doing, then that grace that God has given us extends outward to others. Salvation not at work is when that suspicion and that negativity leads to a kind of stress inside the church that we no longer have one mind. But we have many minds that are worrying about what other minds are thinking. This word that Paul uses for mind, you recognize it in words like paranoia. Paranoia is about, more or less translates to uh, beside thinking or outside thinking. You're thinking around what others are thinking. Paranoia is defined as having a lot of suspicion or negativity. Why? Because you assume that people are always doing something intentionally against you. I know there's more clinical definitions of paranoia, but word's been around for a while. But paranoia would be the opposite of having the one mind, the mind of Christ. It simply focuses on what we can do for others rather than focusing on what others will do or could do or might do to us. Church, I want to encourage us to be the kind of people who do not become spiritual paranoids, okay? And that is defined by a reactionary focus on what others think. Sometimes, though, when that negativity and that suspicion representing a a type of mindset that is focused on making sure that everybody else gets it right, it creates a negative environment. It creates a, a culture where good people give up on doing good because they just believe, well, it's just impossible to get anything done. Because no matter what we do, we're going to be condemned for it. Now, I'm not convinced that that's the case here. I'm not convinced that that's the case anywhere. I am convinced that sometimes we worry too much and we borrow trouble. I've seen that over the years, and and I tell you, if you do ministry long enough, you begin to notice this. I'll tell one story from a long time ago. I think the statutes of limitations have run out on this, so it's safe to tell. But, you know, I was asked to do one of these meetings. You go to somewhere and you do a little meeting, and the guy who's asking me to come in there and do this, the preacher, I mean, he's very much a guardian 
of what's going on. And so everything's going fine, except he tells me, now, if you preach a word of error, I will jerk you out of the pulpit. All of a sudden, my inner redneck starts building up. And, uh, you know, he says, oh, yeah, let's see him try. But God's grace gave me a good answer, and I just said, I'll tell you what, how about I preach the Bible? Is that good enough? Yeah, it was a little sarcastic, but he was asking for it, wasn't he? And so anyway, but I use that simply as an example. Everything worked out. It's all good. It's all fine. But I use that as an example to say, why would somebody say something like that? Well, because sometimes we are so motivated by a fear that we that we assume that when people do things wrong, that it's intentional or it has an agenda. We see slippery slopes everywhere. Paul is saying that that kind of outlook is not salvation at work. If you're saved, if Christ has saved you, then you have no fear of the opponents, of your opposition. Your only fear should be that of pleasing God and that of working on in His name. That should be your only concern, your only motivating force. And He says, no matter what others think, you are going to be pleasing Him. And really, honestly, this is what He says in the, to the Corinthians as well. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, I've come to realize that It matters very little to me how I'm judged by you or any other human court. In fact, that doesn't, he goes, I don't even judge myself. He says, because it's God who judges me. Even Paul says, now I may think that I'm okay, but that doesn't make me innocent. Now notice, this is an internal dialogue. He says, that doesn't make me innocent. But it's what God judges that matters. Now, folks, if we would just stop and think about that, that God's judgment of us is what defines us, then we could rest more assuredly in that grace, learn what it means, learn what that salvation means and how it's good news, and then we start living our lives worthily of that instead of a reactionary focus about what other people may or may not think. I mean, if we want to, we can go and we can send out tons of surveys to ask everybody, am I being a good Christian? And you can look at the numbers, or you can trust in God. Life is so much easier and happier when we trust in God. Because you know that you've got the only judgment that truly matters. So which mind is it that works in us? Is it the self-interested, defensive, worried, anxious, fearful mind Where we doubt ourselves or we doubt others or we're concerned about what others think or we're always trying to figure out how we're supposed to react to a situation. Paul describes that before he describes the mind of Christ. He describes a self-interested, ambitious motivation that says, well, I'll do this and I'll win everybody's favor. Later on, he'll describe his own list of uh, points on his resume. Look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at all of this. He'll say, when it comes to religion, I'm I'm in good shape. He says, but I would throw it all away in the trash. trash." He says, I I would just dispose of it all. We'll save this for last week, but for next week. He said, I would just get rid of it all. He goes, because all I want to know is Christ. 
if the mind of Christ works in us, the mind that trusted in God, even though it leads to death, embarrassing death on a cross, humiliating death on a cross, it's still a mind that seeks the good in others because it knows that God is ultimately at work and willing in the world to work on salvation. And we can be a part of that. Which mind works in us? That will determine our action. Hear these words again from Paul. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When you see this, this is what it looks like to talk about it. But at some point, we see it in action. One of the great things that came from this trip to Guatemala that Rick was sharing with us a little earlier is that I saw this mind of Christ being lived out and worked out in the lives of very real people that you and I know, people of all ages. And it put me in mind of something that happened exactly 30 years ago. From 1987 to 2017, I've been thinking about that span of time a lot lately. 1987, I was probably just a little older than some of these guys that went on this trip to Guatemala. And I was in Scotland. And Scotland had a very secular culture that did not necessarily care about faith. It was all a bunch of institutional religion. And we were working with the church there, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And here we were, a campus ministry group from the University of Arkansas. They'd never seen a group from a state school campus ministry before. They'd seen groups from Christian schools. And they always had this assumption that at a Christian school, you kind of like, you know, you're supposed to be good because you don't have any other choice. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if that, was, if that wasn't your experience at a Christian school, well, let's not, let's not spring that one on them right now. But anyway, they... Uh, but, what was really funny is when they started asking us, and they would say, so is uh, University of Arkansas, is that a Christian school? And we were like, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, no. And, um, you know, we were definitely not known of as a Christian school in 1987. I'm sure it's changed by now. But, um, but they noticed that. And they noticed that despite the barriers or lack of barriers in our world, we were still striving to please God and to live genuine Christian lives. And I can still remember these words that one of my peers, one of the young men from Scotland said. He said, when you're here, we look at you and we realize your situation's just like ours. That they're not necessarily encouraging you to live like Christ, and yet you do. They said, you've inspired us to do the same thing here in our country. And now 30 years later, many of those are still doing that. And then when we go to Guatemala this year, at the end of the two weeks, Paul is sharing, Paul Kreitz is sharing with our group, and he says, listen, we've got some brothers and sisters here that they've heard a way of religion that is not gospel, because it's not good, it's not news. It's all about living with fear and trembling, but not fear and trembling of God, but fear and trembling of the rules and the regulations he says, but then they see this joy that you have because you follow Christ. 
They see this unity that you have. And I mean, where we are in, in, in rough conditions, you would think that everybody would just be complaining about this. We had vans, vans breaking down. We had this breaking down. You know, and hey, let me say this, because you know, Rick, you know, Rick's concerned. He's like, hey, listen, I don't want everybody to know all this bad stuff. I'm going to glory in it, okay? Because every time one of those things broke, it was like, eh, this is great. This is another chance for God to show that he's in charge and we're not. ha. <laughs> And then everybody has a fantastic attitude. Why? Because we know that we're not there to be pampered and served, but we're there to serve. And then you see it. You see it in our young people. You see it in our not-so-young people. You see it in our really not-so-young people. And everybody, every single member of our group has this fantastic attitude. Why? Because they got the mind of Christ. And they live that mind of Christ out. And now, all of a sudden, our Guatemalan brothers and sisters are looking at this, and they're realizing, that's what we want. We want more of that. It's not that they want to be American. It's not that they want to be exactly like us with all the resources we have. What they want to have is, they want to have that same joy in serving Christ that they understand that God is on their side. And so there's some things changing. This is probably one of the reasons why one of the young men was baptized. Because he had some logical, uh, uh, Rick mentioned him uh, in his presentation here. He had some, some logical things that he had to get over. He was like, but how can you serve God? And, and you know what? He was teasing that out. He's a very bright, smart kid. Paul Kreitz was telling me that he's working it all out, thinking it all through, wondering if it's really logical and reasonable to believe in God. And then guess what puts him over the edge? He sees it in action. He sees people working it out and living it out. And he says, that's what it's like. That's what makes it real. And he accepts the good news in Jesus Christ. And so Paul told us, he said, if anybody ever wonders what the value of this is, tell them that story. So I just did. That story works in Scotland, it works in Guatemala, it works in Fort Smith, it works in Oklahoma and Arkansas. You and I need to put the mind of Christ into action and work out our salvation. Now I want to say this one last thing. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling does not mean that you've got to work anxiously to prove to God that you deserve to be saved. And it seems like every time I've ever preached this lesson, there's always somebody who will come to me and say, well, I don't want to be arrogant and think that maybe God's got this all taken care of. I mean, I think we still need to work, right? No! Work is not our way of earning salvation. Work is our way of taking the gracious salvation that God gives and putting it into practice. And if you can't accept that, then you don't understand gospel. I've got to make it that clear. Preacher, you're making it sound like, you know, somebody can just do whatever they want. Well, that's not what I'm trying to say. But the thing is that when you preach grace, sometimes it does sound that way, even though it's not. I'm just going to trust you to join the journey with us for all of us to put this mind in action. And working out our own salvation does not mean that you and I are do-it-yourself salvation builders. It means that you've been given salvation. Now you need to put it to work. James put it this way. James, the guy, one of the other guys that's in the Bible that writes a letter in the Bible. James puts it this way. He says, show me your faith by your works. He says, if you want to show me what you believe and what is in your mind, then show it to me by the way you live your life. Because 
Faith is good, and faith without any kind of work or action, though, is meaningless. It's dead. If you need to submit to Christ in baptism today, let that be your act of worship and service. If you need to work out your salvation in some other way today, let us give you the encouragement to do that. Let's stand, uh, let's sing. If you need to respond, our shepherds will be down here to receive you.